leaders are always looking for opportunities to do good. And if you're going to work every day, what good can I do? If you're at a scene, you're at a situation, you just quietly ask yourself, what good can I do here? Uh, it's, that's just kind of your whole mindset. You're looking for opportunities to do good. You're going to get ideas. You're going to hear of something. You're going to recognize a need. And you're just naturally going to instinctively respond. everybody and welcome to the kitchen table in this podcast we sit down with leaders from across the country to talk all things leadership with one simple goal to spread the leadership conversation in hopes to grow more leaders i'm your host berlin maza and today on the kitchen table it's an honor to bring in our first guest speaker from law enforcement captain dan willis served with the la mesa police department for 30 years in part as a crimes of violence sexual assault child molestation and homicide detective, SWAT commander, academy instructor, and wellness unit peer support coordinator. He was officer of the year twice in four years and was nominated as detective of the year for California. He is a graduate of the FBI National Academy for senior police managers and a graduate of San Diego State University. Captain Willis is the author of the Emotional Survival and Wellness Guidebook, Bulletproof Spirit, the first responder's essential resource for protecting and healing mind and heart, which is a required reading at the FBI National Academy. He is an instructor with the National Command and Staff College, as well as individually on first responder trauma recovery, resilience, and wellness, having trained over 8,000 peace officers in 36 states and Canada. Captain Willis lives in San Diego, California with his wife. We're going to unpack quite a bit today, starting with mental health, youth leadership, and a whole lot more. All of our guest speakers thus far on the kitchen table have been from the fire service side of things. And because we talk about the importance of perspective on the kitchen table, especially as it relates to leadership, we get to gain a new and different perspective from Captain Dan Willis with over 30 years of work in law enforcement, as well as focusing his late career and retirement with mental, behavioral, emotional, and spiritual wellness. Captain, thank you so much for joining us today on the kitchen table. How are you? Very well. Thank you, Brian. I appreciate the opportunity. So I finished the book, Bulletproof Spirit, phenomenal read, if I may say. Uh, you mentioned it's a required book to read at the FBI National Academy. I would argue after reading it, it should be a required book for all new rookies upon graduation You know, of the fire and the police academy. I want to dive deep into all that today. But before we do, would you mind sharing a little bit about Captain Willis, family, hobbies, your work in law enforcement, and anything you'd like to share before we get going? Sure. I'd like to start off with just sharing what a great, great opportunity and a great profession public service is. Whether you're police, fire, paramedic, corrections, anything that serves the public good, uh, we are tremendously needed by our country. Uh, now more than ever, uh, without us, you know, our community would look like Afghanistan, right? So we need to be healthy and well and resilient uh, and motivated to do as much good as we can every single day in order to enable our people to live in freedom and peace without the fear of being victimized. So uh, I had these ideals uh, very young uh, growing up and really wanted to be a police officer when I was in high school. 
And uh, I, I loved every minute of the 30 years, despite all the trauma and the heartache and the violence and a lot of misery I dealt with and suffered from. Uh, there's a lot of that in any first responder profession, right? But that just means there's all the more opportunity to do good and to be helpful and to be useful. That's what I love so much about these honored professions. And that's what I miss every single day since I've been uh, out of it now, since I've been teaching for eight years. Uh, I'm married, uh, previously divorced. I have five stepchildren. Uh, things I like to do here, living in San Diego, there's all kinds of opportunities to be out in nature. I love swimming in the ocean, just being at the ocean, walking, hiking, biking, sailing, uh, pretty much anything outdoors, uh, tennis, uh, basketball. So uh, I, I just love the uh, peace and the healing energy of nature and, and keeping yourself fit and being active outdoors. <laughs> you mentioned the ocean, and uh, although I love the ocean, um, up here in Washington, we don't get to you know touch the ocean too much. Up here, it's a little bit cold. You've been retired since 2014, was it? December of 2014, uh, pretty much when uh, the first edition of Bulletproof Spirit came out. Uh, how did you get into leadership work? Uh, was it earlier in your career? Was it upon retirement? Uh, initially, it was my very first sergeant that I had. Uh, he, he was someone that was a recognized leader within the department. He was someone that uh, personally did whatever he could to mentor me and other people on the squad. Uh, you know, pulling me aside individually and, and uh, teaching me all kinds of stuff I would not have learned from other sergeants. Uh, and he didn't have to do that. And he was just trying to pass on the expertise that he knew in, in computers and research and how to investigate certain types of crimes and all that. All that. And, and uh, it was tremendously inspiring because I saw the influence it had on me and the great impact it had on me. And, and especially my first year or two in my career, that really laid the foundation to really have a meaningful and fulfilling career and be able to do all kinds of uh, things I would have never even imagined when I first started out. So uh, that was kind of the, the seedbed. But uh, I've always really have believed every officer is a leader as well as a follower. I mean, even from day one, you're, you're a leader in your community. As soon as you put that badge over your heart um, and as you progress throughout your career, either in police or fire, uh, you're learning more and more, you're developing, you're growing, you're, you're improving, you're, you're improving your capacities to be more effective and to influence other people. And uh, leadership is a natural progression of doing more and becoming more and looking for opportunities to do good and to be helpful and uh, to be useful to the team, to the organization, to individuals in the community, to everyone that, that needs us. So it's an integral part of any first responder profession is to not be a good follower and being uh, humble and um, understanding somebody who, who has more experience than you do and trusting them and kind of giving yourself to be teachable as well as as developing yourself and passing on what you know to other people. Obviously, the law enforcement profession has changed dramatically over the last decade or so. Would you say leadership in law enforcement today is more challenging more than ever? Well, there's, there's definitely more challenges, which is fine because, um, you know, I, I found in times of the greatest need, when our people are the most discouraged or frustrated or burned out, or they're questioning their motives, why they, why they even want to be a cop or a fire in the first place. That's the greatest need for a good, effective leader. So now more than ever, these professions need good, positive, 
leaders that can reinforce the whole purpose of what it means to serve, to do good and be the good amidst all the bad that's going on. And uh, people, when they're really struggling, they're discouraged and, and stuff, and maybe even feeling a little hopeless, that's, I feel they're most receptive for a leader to come in and kind of help pick them up and show them the way. Uh, how to not be defeated by things, but to use uh, challenge, traumas, difficulties as motivation to do some good and focus on the good that you can do and not on the things that are being limiting or what we can't. Absolutely. And uh, earlier you'd mentioned, you know, every officer is a leader from day one. I mean, I love that piece. I mean, we've talked about it quite a bit here on the podcast is you don't have to be of, you know, formal rank, right? You don't need to be, you know, in a promoted position to be a, a quote unquote, you know, a leader, right? You said leaders, officers are leaders from day one. And that's, you know, that's it, relevant to every profession, you know, fire service, law enforcement and everywhere. And in these positions, Berlin, everyone truly is a leader. You're either a good one or a bad one, or maybe an ineffective and different one. So even the beginning officer, right? The community, people look up to you and you're either, you're either carrying that authority that the people of the state have given you to protect them in a meaningful, constructive way or not. So by what we choose to do, and I always say every call matters in the long run for your overall health and well-being and leadership ability, how you handle every call, how you handle every interaction with the public, with somebody within your team or, or agency, it all adds up and it all either is helping and adding to your abilities or taking away from yourself and others. And that's what's great about leadership. Everyone, like you said, can be a leader. But like you said, it's important for leaders or people rather to know that leaders can lead in good ways, but also they can lead in bad ways. In fact, you know, a sports psychologist would say, if you decide to lead others, right, um, just don't be one who talks negative because negative is, you know, negative talk specifically is just so much more effective at, you know, changing or affecting culture or morale uh, than being positive. So in short, if you want to be a good and effective leader, just don't be a negative leader. Uh, but let's talk about Bulletproof Spirit. I've read it. The title is very fitting. You've sold over 30,000 copies, if I understand that correctly. But tell me about this book and what inspired you to write it. Sure. It's, it's a Bulletproof Spirit is a wellness and resilience guidepost. It, it's an emotional survival roadmap for first responders to be able to understand the nature of our daily work traumas how they can change us into someone our loved ones don't recognize anymore, maybe even someone that we don't recognize. And uh, it, it provides very, very specific evidence-based, a lot of science and research behind it all, uh, effective wellness and resilience strategies to meet what we deal with day in and day out. And instead of letting these traumatic incidents victimize us and uh, enable us to be less of what we could be, uh, for you to be able to learn how to respond to them in healthy and constructive and meaningful ways that actually fosters greater resilience, greater fitness, not just physically, but emotionally, mentally, and spiritually. So there's over 40 wellness strategies, wellness and resilience strategies um, within Bulletproof Spirit. Uh, I've done them all. Uh, I know they work because I, I lived them, but uh, I know they're very impactful and um, effective because of all the science behind it. 
So how did you specifically get into behavioral and mental health work? Well, initially, I became more and more involved with wellness and resilience while I was a lieutenant. So going back to 2010, my agency sent me to the FBI National Academy in Quantico, Virginia. And it's a 10-week course for senior police management for uh, managers from not only all over the country and every state, but from all over the world. And a 10-week course is kind of set up like a college semester, and you choose what five classes you want to take during those 10 weeks. And one of the classes I took was called uh, Emotional Survival uh, and Wellness Issues in Law Enforcement. And that really uh, opened my eyes and heart a lot to how not only I had suffered over the years, but uh, so many of my colleagues and never really having a whole lot within our agency in this profession about what to do about it. So that was really the impetus to start looking into how our daily work traumas can really injure your brain and what we can do about it to not only just protect ourselves. So hopefully we don't suffer those kind of injuries, uh, but, and, but how to recover, how to uh, strengthen resiliency every day by what you're practicing daily to enhance your wellness and, and resilience and how to just maintain your overall wellness in your heart, mind, body, and spirit. So you can be there for all the people who actually need you. And you mentioned this book is a required reading at the FBI National Academy, which is phenomenal. I would argue that this book, Bulletproof Spirit, in addition to Dr. Gil Martin's book, it should be a required reading for all first responders, police and fire. And um, for those that you know may not know, obviously Gil Martin's book, you know, talks about you know, the recognition and the defining of things such as hypervigilance, being hyper-aware, so on and so forth. Um, and your book here, Captain, is about, you know, the telling of the warning signs and what to actually do once you recognize that, you know, you're changing or that you've recognized, you know, that you have some of these symptoms. Even, you know, for example, you know, I have the book open right now, you know, as I look at the nine warning signs, right? You know, irritability, isolation, difficulty sleeping, anger, frustration, so on and so forth. I mean, what first responder, you know, doesn't experience these? You know, I'll call BS on any first responder who says they don't experience, you know, a majority of these warning signs, you know, at some point in their career or ongoing. But have you had people reach out to you, uh, Captain, to tell you that you've helped them or your book has helped them recognize who they are and that, you know, this is, uh, you know, it's changed them, you know, having, having seen or read about some of this stuff? Well, I get emails from time to time from people from uh, all over who say they've uh, read the book. And uh, some people have actually said it saved their life. Uh, I had one not very long ago from a captain from uh, the northeast part of our country who said it. I don't know if I can really say it saved my life, but it absolutely changed my life. And uh, I, I get notices like that, um, like I said, uh, pretty periodically throughout the eight, 10 years I've been doing this. And the reason for that is the book is full of resilience and wellness strategies. It's just full of things that you can actually do. It's not just information to people. It's practical, evidence-based, proven strategies that actually work. I know they work because I lived them and it helped me to be able to do this job for 30 years. And, um, I miss it every day now that I'm out of it. But there's a lot of science behind everything I'm sharing with you today. Uh, a lot of science with everything within the book. And, and these strategies are, are fairly simple, very, very practical. Uh, it just takes someone to be committed 
to uh, not wanting to just hope for the best and be a victim from the traumas of this job, but to actually do something about it and to uh, be able to learn how to recover from what we see day in and day out and to be well and to be able to get a good night's sleep and to be able to enjoy a, a good and healthy and peaceful family life and to have a meaningful, successful career. Well, in order to do that, we need to be practicing those things that will enable that. You know, I've always believed that all first responders will change throughout their career, right? I have. I've seen other people change, uh, whether they recognize it or not, whether, you know, we want to admit it or not. You know, police and firefighters will struggle throughout their careers, right? Mentally, physically, and emotionally. But it's one thing to to recognize that one has changed, right? It's another thing to do something actively to not let the change negatively affect you over, you know, over the long term. Um, But Captain, when you went to the FBI National Academy, you took these courses in mental and behavioral health, right? Um, You were around like-minded individuals. But how effective were these techniques or strategies, if you will, you know, in helping others, you know, your fellow police officers, you know, who say, you know, or who are not or did not believe in mental health or didn't believe that, you know, mental health was important or that they were, you know, didn't believe that they were affected by it. Well, that's absolutely true. Berlinda, every single person in any first responder profession is going to change to some degree, is going to have struggles, is uh, even going to suffer from time to time. In my uh, training classes, I uh, one of the first questions I ask is, hey, raise your hand if you're the same person you were when you got hired. And uh, I'll ask all of your listeners just to kind of quietly think about that themselves. Are you the same person you were when you got hired? Has this job negatively affected you at all? Your family, your sleep, your peace of mind, your uh, health and well-being, uh, your uh, motivation to even want to do this kind of work, your view of people, uh, just on and on and on and on. So we, we I, I have not had one person seriously say in the 8,000 peace officers I've trained, police and fire, to have one seriously say that the job has not significantly affected them in a negative way. So. Uh, the follow-up to that is, okay, let's acknowledge that. That's just part of the job. You know, we see things that, and deal with things that people weren't meant to deal with. And they're going to affect you, right? It doesn't matter who you are, what kind of training you've had, whether you served in the military. I mean, who has the highest rates of post-traumatic stress? It's the military. And they see horrible things all the time. You, your brain does not get used to these things. So the more that we just kind of accept, okay, these things can really cause some major problems. And if I do start to struggle, that's okay, right? That's normal, but I don't have to just be a victim of it. There are things I can take control over my wellness and do to respond to trauma in ways that are gonna foster greater resiliency. And that was my hope in coming back from FBI Academy and writing the book is to give people the training, the tools. There's over 40 wellness strategies throughout the book. And if people can just take one or two, just something that they can be consistent with and practice day in and day out, they're increasing their percentages of making it to retirement and being perfectly fine. Right. And they're not just hoping for the best, like we've traditionally done. And while we keep doing that, suicide keeps being our number one cause of death. Does it ever become easy or easier? You know, you've been doing this work in behavioral and mental health, you know, among law enforcement and other, uh, you know, for quite some time now, but do you find that it becomes easier to approach people? 
because you've been doing it a while or, or is it always challenging? Well, it, it is difficult. Uh, it is difficult for me until I kind of learn kind of a most helpful and effective way to approach somebody. Uh, it, it, it can be uncomfortable, but the thing you got to remember is uh, ignoring something, not reaching out to somebody could uh, not only uh, delay their healing and recovery, prolong their suffering, but could end up costing them their life. Because I'm convinced when uh, a first responder ends up making that decision and actually taking their life, they're convinced nobody even cared. Nobody noticed how depressed, how, how much I was suffering. No one reached out to me. No one cared. So why not? Right. So uh, something is very, very simple. Uh, I would say to someone, hey, um, you know, off to the side where people can't hear. I noticed you haven't really been yourself lately. And you want to go get a cup of coffee and, and talk or you know, I notice you haven't been yourself lately. Is, is everything all right? And, uh, you know, they're not likely to react very defensively to that. I mean, that's a very genuine and compassionate question, not threatening to them because they can either say, uh, well, I've had some issues or I'm perfectly fine, but they're still going to appreciate that connection and that you reached out to them. And often that open door just kind of leads to further discussions later on. Maybe not right then, but maybe in a week or a month or two when they're maybe they're having some more problems, they're not going to forget you asked about them, reached out to them, and maybe you're the one that they're actually going to go to. And the time to do that, to be able to connect with our people and to reach out to them is not when you first notice a potential problem. It's just in our daily interactions to be uh, positively engaged with our people, to not participate in all the negative banter and the rumors and, the, you know, tearing people apart. Uh, when you hear that, you say, hey, hey man, that, that's not helpful and call people out on that and to be uh, daily positive engaged with your people. So you have that kind of a uh, comfortable communication and trust where it's not just so out of the ordinary to come up and say, hey, you know, are you all right? You're just not yourself lately. So from a leadership standpoint uh, there, Captain, I mean, you know, not everybody, you know, that's just in the police force or in any workforce organization is going to be a leader in terms of behavioral mental health. But we all need to be, right? It was a saying that I have is, you know, not everyone needs to be on the peer support team to be peer support, right? I mean, everyone needs to be a peer support person, at least it, to, to a degree, right? There should be a team that is trained to kind of the higher level of peer support. But we're all in a better place. Our organizations are better when we're all trained on recognition of what a peer member could do to help people in crisis. And that needs to be supported with a consistent message from the top down that uh, to kind of lay the expectation from the first day you get hired is that we are all peer support. We all have the moral and ethical responsibility to look out for our brothers and sisters that we serve with because their struggles, them not being at their very best is putting my life and my health and safety in danger, right? So in the uh, effectiveness to the community of this, of the service provided and um, with the potential of excessive force of people not doing their job of being unprofessional and on and on and on for them not being uh, fit and well in mind, heart, body and spirit affects everyone. 
So uh, it should be the expectation laid on from the chief and all the way down, consistently reaffirmed by management supervisors and colleagues that we're here to help each other get through this career and to be able to enjoy the next 30, 40 years of our life beyond. And that starts with every day, every call for service, looking out for each other, helping each other, supporting each other, listening to each other, reaching out to one another. It's all of our responsibility because it affects everybody. How do you how do you suggest we get uh, books like these to be a part of a required reading for, you know, mass numbers in the police and law enforcement or sorry, police and fire service? Uh, first, it's uh, looking into uh, what are we actually doing now? Yeah. Uh, when I went through the academy, I put myself through the police academy in 1985. And back then uh, there was I think it was 600 hours of mandated training and we had four hours on emotional survival and wellness so fast forward 38 years later now there's 900 hours of mandated training and there's still four hours on emotional survival they're they're currently in the process of uh, doubling that uh and making it uh, eight hours but not still eight eight hours out out of when you consider what we're discussing emotional mental physical and spiritual health wellness and resilience is the foundation for officer safety is the uh, foundation for uh, community safety and security because we can't be as professional as we can do as much good as we can if we are struggling inside if we're suffering um it is a foundation for uh, agencies to be able to fulfill their mission yeah. right and to keep each other and everyone else safe um so uh, it, it's essential for everyone the foundation for for all of what we do is maintaining daily through daily practice of resilience and wellness strategies that's so essential so seeing what's currently being offered and like anything in this uh, area always asking what more can we do is this enough and uh, i've sent uh old proof spirit also have a new book just for uh new peace officers fire and uh, police you do called what is it? police resilience that's is it already out it's already out it, it has a qr codes in it where the reader can use their phone and immediately go to uh, videos of uh, officers talking about their experiences and and uh, the process of recovering and and all of that so uh that's specifically for academy so uh-huh. we have these resources out but a lot of them don't know yes. what's out there or what's available absolutely Oh, that's, uh, I mean, you said, you said two things there. Uh, number one was, first of all, I'd never done the data, right? I mean, you just told me that 400 hours with four hours was uh, behavioral and mental health. I actually, I believe that. I, didn't, I mean, if you have to look at the numbers, it's like, well, of course, why, why we don't have, why we haven't gained any ground on, on this work is because the hours aren't there, right? You double your training hours, but yet you haven't doubled your hours putting into this. And yet here we are stuck. It is good to, here but even if it's double to eight hours i think you and i would both agree not even not even close i mean that should be probably be upwards of 40 60 maybe 80 hours you know of required mental health behavioral health and spirituality which i want to talk about here in a minute there was something- that, that's absolutely true Erlen, because there's uh so much that they can uh, train new officers new fire to give them the tools from the very beginning of their career such as meditation I mean, uh, you, you could teach a whole week course on yeah. how to meditate. You know, obviously you're not going to do that in the academy, but you could certainly allow a whole day yeah. of teaching uh, the mechanics, um, 
and all the science behind it and, and, and how to effectively uh, meditate. In fact, uh, in, at San Diego Police Department, they have a 10 minute uh, meditation period before they break lineup and go out into the field wow. as a way to just kind of to let go of all the stress that maybe they brought from home into work, yeah. kind of uh, let go of the stress of being at work and just being focused on their purpose and and, yeah. and what's what they need to do. And uh, then they, they break lineup and go out into the field. So, I mean, that that's just one yeah. uh, wellness practice meditation, but there's many, many others that they can be teaching yeah. uh, these recruits in Absolutely. the academy to do that'll be with them throughout their whole career. Oh, I, I, I believe it. And I hope... Uh we do make quantum leaps here in the, in the years to come and in the months to come even. I mean, why wait that long? There was a, you one of our future guest speakers. He's a, he's a very renowned, he's a, he's a retired deputy chief out of New Jersey. He's deputy chief, Frank Viscuso. And he talks about, you know, it's short-sighted to say, you know, cause we have the fire service. I'm sure police is no different. It's, it's a supervisor. It's a leader's job to make sure that their crew goes home at the end of the shift. And so what he says, deputy chief goes, that's short-sighted. He needs to make sure he has his crew go home at the end of their careers with a healthy back, a healthy knee, being mentally and physically well. So it's short-sighted to say they need to go home tomorrow. He needs to make sure that the people that work with him and for him are go home at the end of their career healthy and live a happy life after. And I think it was and, and also, also just going home safely at the end of a shift. Uh, I mean, that's what they taught us initially. Yeah. That means it was a good night. But if you're going home and you're physically safe, but you're uh, yelling and screaming at the kids and you get in fights with your spouse and uh, you're depressed, you're angry, you're, you're sleeping maybe two hours, you're drinking way too much. Now that's not a successful shift, right? right. So um, I always talk about when I talk to supervisors and managers about this concept of becoming their primary care provider. Yeah. I think that's essential for organizations to be well is is that for supervisors and managers to not just be concerned about how did the officer do the job, but uh, how is the job affecting them? Yeah. And, and being proactive in that engagement and outreach yeah. and connection. Because uh, when you think of a primary care provider, and you know, most people think of a doctor, but, uh, you know, what's your relationship with your doctor? And that kind of should be how a supervisor and manager's uh, relationship is mirrored. Like you feel confident you feel um, very trusting of your doctor uh you go to them when you have an issue when you have a problem you tell them what's going on you trust that they have your best interests at heart they're going to do whatever they can to help you uh to become whole again and to be well and that's kind of the relationship we really need to foster in supervision is to have our officers feel comfortable coming to us telling us what's going on, trusting that we're going to have their best interests at heart. We're going to help them uh, to get better, help them to improve, help them to recover um, and do everything we can for them, similar to a physician. Now, you know, obviously supervisors aren't psychologists and all that stuff, but they're there to support and take care of the people or the mission's never going to get done that the agency's trying to do. Captain, you've mentioned spirituality a few times today. Can you elaborate on spirituality or spiritual wellness. Yes, absolutely. And, and, and spiritual wellness and fitness truly is the foundation for physical, emotional, and mental well-being. It, it's absolutely essential. And uh, as I describe and define spiritual wellness, uh, I, I don't mention religion. 
because uh, it really isn't religion. Now, somebody's faith, practice, whatever it might be, uh, can certainly enhance their spiritual well-being and, and fitness and resilience. But you don't have to have any type of a religion or faith practice. What spiritual wellness really is, is your capacity to love, your capacity to be helpful, to be useful, to be driven by your heart, to want to make a meaningful difference with your agency, make a meaningful difference with your colleagues, uh, make a difference in the community. It's your capacity to consistently through your decisions and actions affirm the good that's within you, to affirm and strengthen your character consistently, to your uh, capacity to maintain close, meaningful, and healthy relationships. And relationships are absolutely central. They're the foundation for a meaningful and fulfilling life and career. So if you're not spiritually well, those are the officers that are uh, calloused, kind of cold-hearted, they're shut down, they really don't feel anymore. Uh, they don't have a purpose at work beyond their self-interests. That's a significant aspect of spiritual well-being is having a purpose beyond yourself in this great and noble work of, of protecting life and enabling life and freedom and justice and peace, right? All of that is outside of ourselves. But those officers that are not spiritually well are very self-centered, very ego-driven, are not humble. They uh, aren't very teachable. A lot of them I call their, their heart is suffocating where they, they really can't express or, or uh, feel compassion. And uh, if, if that's your current state, you're really no good to anybody, right? You need to have that spiritual aspect of ourselves of being able to have a, a, a giving and nurturing heart to uh, relate to people and to do good and to be helpful and useful in your life and uh, in this work. So if you are not, that's going to affect obviously your emotions. It's going to cause and lead to depression or anxieties or all kinds of um, emotional distress it's going to affect your mental fitness and your ability to make good sound decisions because you don't really have a guidepost, uh, an, an ideal that you're working towards, which is spiritual, right? That ideal of doing as much good as you can and helping people and, and serving. And all of those things will eventually affect your physical health. So that's yeah. why I say spiritual wellness and resilience is the absolute foundation. Yeah. And because we experience traumas every single day, sometimes multiple times a day, it's really essential to practice spiritual wellness as well as mental, emotional, and physical every day, daily practices. And a daily practice of spiritual wellness could be as simple as just reminding yourself the purpose of your job. Now, why are you willing to sacrifice yourself or part of yourself for the good of the community, right? To serve your country, to serve the community, to, uh, to protect life, you know, why? What motivates you to do that? You know, where does that come from? Thinking about what good can I do here? Just in a, a current situation or out on the call, asking yourself, what good can I do in this moment? That's all a spiritual practice because it's enabling and empowering your inner self, your heart, to be able to do as much good and to be as useful. Now, other, uh, As I said, I think earlier, other than love, being useful and helpful is one of the most basic human needs. And you need to be um, fit with a spiritual mind and a spiritual purpose in serving others. Because that's what service is. It's a yeah. giving of self 
right? It's a giving of yourself for others or for a cause greater than your own. I love this piece on spiritual wellness. I mean, no one talks about spiritual wellness by definition. And I've got the definition pulled up right in front of me now is, you know, spiritual wellness is having a sense of purpose and meaning in life. I think we all need to have an intact, healthy, spiritual wellness practice by definition. I mean, because without one or without it, one has no defined purpose in what they do. Sounds like everyone needs to redefine or define in the first place their own levels of spiritual wellness. So thank you for that. As we move forward and continue to talk leadership, you started a youth leadership camp over 10 years ago. Still going strong today, if I understand. I want to learn more about this, Cap. If you can uh, elaborate a little more on this youth leadership camp you started in La Mesa. Yeah, so this is uh, back in 2012 when I started this, and uh, it's still going today, even though I've retired, uh, minus the COVID years. It's something that my agency does every year. What it is is every summer for four full days, we'll get uh, one group of about 20, 25 high school kids who will go through the whole week. And uh, we have uh, officers who volunteer their time. They love doing it because it's one of those good, positive, proactive things that they can do to contribute to the community. And uh, each the whole purpose of the camp is to train teenagers how to become good, effective, compassionate leaders, how to make a meaningful difference in their life and in their community as they continue their education and move on with life. So uh, each day is part of lecture and kind of class leadership exercises and things. Uh, Every day will be a motivational speaker that comes in. Every day we have uh, something on community service and we'll go out together with them out in the community to do some type of community service work. Then every day is some type of physical challenge, physical activity. Like one year we took them to Mission Bay in San Diego and we all kayaked and uh, we climbed Cowles Mountain, which is the highest point in the city of San Diego. I mean, just all, all kinds of stuff. To, and every activity, whether it's classroom or being out outside out in the community, it, it helps reinforce what we told them in the morning, helps reinforce uh, their developing leadership qualities and in, in interacting with each other within their, their team, their group. Now, do you or does the department have the opportunity to stay in touch with these participants who complete the camp, like later on down the road? I mean, it'd be you know amazing to see what some of these teenagers become. Uh, we do sometimes. Like, uh, there's one particular girl that I'm thinking of. She came to the camp. She was very, very quiet. She um, like she hardly participated. Didn't even know if she really wanted to be there. I just uh, very, very withdrawn. So she went through the camp, and then fast forward about three or four months later in our city council chambers as a captain, you know, you have to be there during council meetings. And I see her walk in and she's filling out the form for public speaking to address the council where they get three minutes to say whatever they want to the council. So uh, she goes up there and she hardly said two words during the leadership camp, but I guess she was taking it all in and and learning because her whole speech to the city council was what she learned from the camp and that she's coming to the council to, uh, put herself available to be on the, on the um, youth commission that the city council was developing to address youth issues and stuff within the community. And she wanted to serve on that commission. So, uh, I mean, and some of those just during the camp, we see transformations on these people. Uh, Like this one kid, I don't think he ever pushed himself 
that he ever did anything physical his whole life. And he's puking his guts out as we are, as we're walking up the mountains, you know, and we stayed with him and encouraged him. And he ever, he made it. And just, he was just beaming. Uh, and he wanted to quit. He wanted to go back, but you know, he made it. And it's showing people that you can always do more than you think you can, which is a core element of leadership, right? You don't give up, you persevere, you find a way over it or through it or under it or around it. And uh, you, you can see complete transformation of some of these. Some of these kids, it's the only positive interaction they've had with authority, with the law enforcement. It really awakens them to the purpose in life, which is serving and doing good, having the will and compassion to help others. And who knows the benefit of that that's going to carry on throughout their whole life. I mean, we probably had a close to 200 kids go through the camp since it started back in 2012. I love this camp. And you're right. Oftentimes you don't really know the long lasting impact that this camp or, you know, camps alike has on kids in, you know, in the communities and in their lives. Um, But you can't imagine that because of camps like this and the curriculum uh, provided uh, or included has, you know, life changing impact on these kids. I love it. Um, you and I will talk more offline about this so I can pick your brain and I want to, you know, see if we can start something like this up here. I'm curious, how did you get a program like this off the ground or, you know, what inspired the idea initially? Well, how the idea initially came to me was just one afternoon I was sitting in my office as a captain and uh, the chief of police went walking by my door and I kind of yelled out to him, hey, chief, where you been? And uh, he stuck his head back in and said, uh, I had to give a little talk to the Kiwanis Club for lunch. And he started walking. We go, Kiwanis, what's that? He said, ah, it's a service organization that they do stuff for kids and whatever. They help kids. And he walked off. And as soon as he said that, I had the idea right there. And the first thought was, well, why can't we do something to help kids? And, and that was the seed for the youth leadership camp. Now, one of the things I, I stress all the time are leaders are always looking for opportunities to do good. And if you're going to work every day, what good can I do? If you're at a scene, you're at a situation, you just quietly ask yourself, what good can I do here? Uh, it's, that's just kind of your whole mindset. You're looking for opportunities to do good. You're going to get ideas. You're going to hear of something. You're going to recognize a need. And you're just naturally going to instinctively respond because that's just kind of your whole outlook that you've cultivated within yourself, looking for opportunities to do good, to be helpful, to be useful. That's actually one of the most basic needs of human beings. Other than love, we need to be useful. We need to be helpful. So we need to be proactive at that. You're talking about being proactive and looking for opportunities to do just that. So I figured, you know, you can't do anything by yourself in these professions. Uh, So the first thing was to get a core group of people, a steering committee of four or five people, I got excited about this as I talked to them about the possibilities of what we could teach them, what the camp could be. So I had, I think it was five people within the agency. And then, uh, okay, we got to get this, um, at least the concept approved by the chief. So we kind of had some broad ideals and overarching theme and purpose of the camp. Uh, Brought that to the chief. He tells us, hey, great idea. Go to it. Don't have it cost the city a penny. Or the department. Okay. So um, we kind of laid out, well, how would each day look like? Uh, would have officers volunteer their time, uh, the activities that we would do. And then we started thinking about, okay, uh, how are we going to have donations for that? We got the uh, police officers union on board, which was very important because they're a 501c3. 
So when people gave us money for the youth leadership camp, we had them write the check to the police officers association. So they got a tax deductible donation. And then the police officer association would give us the money. How long, so, uh, how long did it take? Did you get it done with it? Like get it up and going from the idea to the first uh, annual? Was it the next year or that year? Probably, probably within uh, a couple months from the initial idea. Wow. Really? I had the idea in the springtime and uh, we did the class right after school got out. So in late June or so, and uh, the money was really pretty forthcoming is what we went to is okay, who likes to give money to the community and who has a lot of money to give car dealerships, car, car dealerships gave us all kinds of money. Uh, we went to the San Diego chargers. They were still here in San Diego uh, and the Padres. Uh, they, they always like doing things for kids and in, in the community. Uh, we went to our waste management. Waste management has a ton of money and the, the waste management company gave us all kinds of money. So uh, the cost of our four day camp ended up being with food. We provided food, the kids, we did not charge a penny. It was all free to them. Uh, it was about $2,500 for 25 kids to go through this week camp. And uh, we never had a problem raising that amount. Wow. I'm going to, uh, you and I are going to talk uh, a little bit offline here to see how we get something going like that. Cause that's, that's amazing. We do have a camp like some of you've heard of it. It's called camp blaze. It's a, uh, it's, it's, it's more or less kind of the same thing. It's a weekend where it's a week long, but then it's a, uh, it's, it's a lot of leadership stuff for young women and they do it on the, you know, on the fire side of things, you know, they, they do a leadership discussions and presentations and they do it, you know, get, get to, you know, play with fire trucks, fire hose, you know, you know, experience the aerial ladder, stuff like that. And, um, you know, that's, has been supported. It actually started it, I think somewhere in California, but then it's from a bunch of firefighters from California and then Washington supported by Seattle fire department. But anyway, there's a leadership camp, you know, like that for, you know, uh, young, uh, young women here. Um, but I'm also curious because uh, when you and I talked or something that a colleague and I tried to get going, you know, similar camp to what you're doing. Um, and we're trying to get one going for the, you know, underprivileged youth in our community. So I, I'm going to have to pick your brain a little bit about that later. Um, yeah, sure. Go ahead. I was going to say, yeah, um, it, it's a, it's something that everyone's going to like the community, the uh, city council, the, the county government, all the stakeholders in the community are going to love police or fire doing something, especially for underprivileged kids or whatever. So you're going to get help kind of coming out where you can't mentally see it in the very beginning. And as we we're saying earlier, it's going to have dividends that are going to pay off for years. Well, I want to take this right into the hot coffee time is what we call it on this podcast, Captain. Hot coffee time is where we talk about a hot topic. And so I'm a firefighter and I'm a little ignorant of law enforcement, but the hot topic um, would be you know, defunding of police or defunding of law enforcement. Do you mind spending some time just talking about what defunding has done to law enforcement, how it's affected, you know, both the morale and literally how the police force has changed over the last five years, if you will? You know, how, how is it different from when you retired to where we're at today in the state of law enforcement? Well, it's one of the main reasons why we see crime going up significantly in most communities throughout the entire country. Uh, it's not just taking away money. It's this whole, what I call diseased ideology that um, prisons are bad. Uh, people have a right, if they had a bad upbringing, to commit a crime, to be a thief. Um, they don't really know what they're doing when they commit an act of violence. 
and uh, law and order is somehow some negative thing, right? Well, you need law and order if you're going to have a peaceful, civil, and free society. <laughs> and as long as you're going to have laws, you're going to have to have people enforce them, right? Because there's there's going to be a certain portion of the society in any community that are going to want to do whatever they want, and they're going to do whatever they can get away with. That's just human nature. Even though the vast majority of people will follow the laws and try to be decent uh, uh, contributing citizens, there are some that just wake up every day and they're thinking about who can I rob, who can I molest, right? Who can I beat? Where can I get money for my drugs? And that's just their total mindset. So what this defunding the police um, uh, has, has done is in a lot of communities, uh, police officers, first of all, they're not applying to become officers. Uh, I hear of agencies being upwards of 30% or even more understaffed. So that means officers that are there are being forced to work overtime and their days off and everything else. And it's causing officers to, uh, in a lot of jurisdictions, to do nothing but answer the radio, which is a big reason why crime increases because a lot of crime uh, gets prevented by officers doing proactive police work. There's communities in Washington, they're uh, debating a bill right now. It's my understanding in California, they're doing it in other uh, jurisdictions where they're legally preventing officers to making traffic stops. Uh, unless you think they might be a drunk driver of uh, preventing officers from arresting people for misdemeanor offenses or for misdemeanor warrants unless it's domestic violence or drunk driving, right? When you stop doing those things, right? People are, are going to be, uh, who are already prone to do it, emboldened and uh, empowered to push the envelope uh, even more. I can't tell you how many times uh, that either I, my officers, I hear of other officers, when they do a traffic stop, somebody has a license plate light out and uh, it's a gang member that's got a loaded gun in the car or it's somebody else who uh, just committed a crime or is just about to do a crime. You have to have proactive law enforcement if we're going to reduce crime and be safe. I mean, think back at, for the uh, Oklahoma City bomber uh, that killed uh I forget how many dozens and dozens of people he was caught because a highway patrolman uh, noticed he didn't have a front license plate. That's why he was stopped and ultimately found out and arrested that you have to be able. And, and why do we have equipment violations right? for safety? It's, we have these laws all because of safety, having your uh, car with the proper lighting that actually works. It's a safety issue. Right. And uh, everything else. So all this is causing uh, policing to be constricted. And when we do that, then the communities are going to be far less safe. And the communities are, are complaining about the police. They're the ones that are actually being victimized more than any other. And uh, eventually, uh, I'm convinced the pendulum will swing back where we start to be more reasonable. Uh, now, it doesn't mean that they're shouldn't be reforms in policing. Uh, there, there could be all kinds of reforms uh, in policing and accountability and, and transparency and uh, connecting with the community and being uh, more engaged with them to um, 
determining what are the actual needs within certain segments of the community and trying to meet those. But taking away money or telling the police do not enforce laws is just going to make more victims and we're seeing it every day. Well, I mean, as we, I mean, as we navigate this conversation today, you know, we talk about mental, behavioral, emotional, and spiritual wellness. You know, when you talk about officers, you know, being overworked, right? You know, departments are understaffed, you know, officers being challenged in their decision-making. Like, that's all going to tax their mental, behavioral, emotional, spiritual wellness, right? And so it's, 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 it's a continuous challenge. So, you know, as a question that I have to follow up is, how do leaders lead in times like these? Well, there are times like these that make leaders, right? When everything's going good, uh, you could do with a very mediocre leader yeah, or maybe even an ineffective yeah. one. Yeah. But this is when leaders really need to come to the forefront. Yeah. And it's a great opportunity to have that leadership be significantly impactful because uh, officers are, are, are really crying out to understand the whole meaning and purpose of law enforcement and for a leader to kind of uh, help them to understand the good that they can still do, no matter what's going on in the community, no matter what restrictions are placed upon us. And it takes a really good, effective leader to uh, enable someone to see in and, and really buy into the whole purpose of what we do here. Yeah. Right? No matter what they're trying to do or to constrict or come after us, as a law enforcement profession. Without us, the community is going to look like Afghanistan. Right? We, we need people to be um, invested in the noble purpose of what we do in protecting life yeah. and in solving problems and in helping people. And you can do that no matter what is going on. And it takes a good, strong, compassionate, and effective leader to uh, help people not lose sight of that we truly are in challenging times um especially when it comes to policing uh, therefore no better time to call for stronger leaders or strong leadership let's move this conversation to the rapid fire the rapid fire part of the podcast captain is the part where we ask our guest speaker to offer some action items some things for our listeners to start doing today to grow as leaders so the first uh, group is that newer employee. This could be a newer firefighter, a recruit firefighter, a newer officer in law enforcement. Um, you know, a newer employee. Offer some kind of action item for those groups of individuals to start doing today to start growing as leaders. Uh, for me, the most important thing newer officers fire can do is to uh, remember and really cultivate this conscious attitude that this truly is a vocation of the heart and that compassion is the DNA of service because it empowers and enables the good that can be done. Just that simple principle. This is a vocation of the heart. You serve with compassion and make a meaningful difference. Compassion is the DNA of service because it enables the good I can do. And if you just focus on that, that's going to be the foundation for any type of leadership uh, development throughout your whole career. How about the emerging leader, right? This is that individual that's aspiring to take on 
a leadership role or a newer leadership role, maybe a promoted position, you know, an aspiring lieutenant, aspiring captain, sergeant, or other. What's one thing that you recommend for them to start doing today to grow as leaders? Uh, one, I would say be positively daily engaged with your people, right? You just don't wait for an issue or a problem to actually uh, have a conversation with someone, but to be developing that, that trust uh, through positive daily engagement and affirmation, what they're doing, how they can do better, be focused on the spiritual principles of service. Having, having a purpose now as an emerging leader, that this is well beyond you. Just like the agency is well beyond you. The agency is going to be here long after we're dead and buried. So what, what kind of footprint can I begin to be leaving now in kind of my middle middle years and developing a, a, as a leader to have a purpose beyond my self-interest, not just for me, but to start working to instill that on the people around me, that this job is more than just us and have a purpose beyond your self-interest of trying to do as much good as you can and supporting one another toward that overall goal of being as effective, being as impactful as we can together as a team, as an agency for the community. That's perfect. <laughs> Finally, what about the senior or established leader? This could be chief officers, senior members of organizations, senior decision makers. What's one thing that you would recommend they do to start doing today to grow as leaders? I would say to consistently strive to pass on everything that you know, right? If you're the absolute best, most effective leader, uh, you knew more about a certain part of this job than anyone else, and then you retired and you never taught anyone, never trained anyone, never helped anyone be better than you, what good is that? All of that is lost. So um, we should be doing that in greater and greater capacities throughout our career. But uh, in our later years, we have to really focus on mentoring, helping them, being proactive at that, not just waiting for people to come to you asking, hey, how can I become a sergeant or whatever, but reaching out to people. Have you ever thought about being a sergeant or a lieutenant? What are your career goals? How can I help you reach that? Passing on what you, I, every time I went to a training class, I would come back and I'd write like a one page bullet points of what I learned and pass that out uh, to the agency. Just constantly, always, even though you're ending your career at this stage, last few years maybe, still be learning, still be humble, still be teachable, and mentoring and helping and training people as much as you can who are going to be far better than we were after we leave. How about I add one more to that, Captain, and ask, as a leader, how does one communicate to those around them, that mental and behavioral health and spiritual health needs to be a priority. So all four of those components of fitness and resilience need to be practiced every day. When I first um, came back from the FBI Academy and I was kind of rolling out our program and our wellness unit and some of the things we're looking at doing in the future, I went to all the lineups and I, and I asked that same question. No, raise your hand if if uh, you have not been negatively affected about this job. And, and nobody ever raised their hand. They all know that they've been affected in all kinds of negative ways. So then the next question was, well, okay, so what can we do about it, right? Do we just do nothing? That's not really in our nature. So what can we do together? 
to help each other uh, get through this job. And, and uh, once you have kind of that self-realization, that self-awareness, yeah, I really have been affected by this job. Yeah, my partner's health and well-being, my life might depend on that. Like it's in everyone's best interest. That kind of helps it. It helps to normalize this whole issue and this culture of wellness that we really have to develop together from the chief down, from the bottom up, to have this normalcy and expectation that this job is going to affect you sometimes in some really bad, sometimes horrific ways, but that's okay because there's ways to recover. There's ways to heal and we're here for each other to help you get through your career. That's got to be the consistent, positive message instead of just hoping for the best, right? We've done that. We've done that for 100 years, and we're losing 140 officers to suicide every year. I think you summed that out great. I mean, mental health has come a long way over the last decade or two, and the stigma around mental health has been changing. But it still must be a focus in all of our organizations, right? Police and fire and and all organizations, and like you said, not just mental, but the emotional, behavioral, and spiritual parts to that, because you are right. We can't just sit here and hope for the best. We have to intentionally do our best to help our people have a long, healthy career and long, healthy retirement as well. And then, and also, I want to add to Berlin that, yeah. uh, and you never know, because I'm assuming probably most of your listeners right now might be a fire or kind of in that area. Mostly are, yes. But uh, I want to share a story of a, a firefighter from my city, from La Mesa. Please. This was a uh, big, tough guy. He'd been a fire fireman for, uh, I think, at least 15 years, maybe even 20 at this point. Obviously, I mean, all your listeners know the, the trauma and the experiences you're going to see 20 years as a firefighter. And he thought he never really was affected by that kind of stuff. You know, it's just part of the job, another dead body, fatal car collision or whatever, another dead kid. It's just, you just kind of move on. And uh, he thought he never really had any lasting effect from that. And then he, um, there's just a a regular call of a collision in the middle of the night. Uh, He goes there and it was a fatal. Uh, and, And what happened was, is, this uh, woman was uh, drinking. She called her husband to come pick her up. Her husband's driving, who had not been drinking. He's driving his drunk wife home when a drunk driver came and collided into them, killing a woman. And, uh, you know, he, he'd been to all kinds of fatal car collisions in his past. And the brain, you never know when the brain just kind of says, that's enough. I've had it. And this was just kind of it for him. Uh, For the next several, several weeks, this firefighter kept having these reoccurring nightmares. Uh, He's back at the scene. He can can smell the gasoline. He can hear the crunch stepping on the debris and stuff. And he's going to recover the body of the woman in his dream. And uh, as he grabs her to start to take her out of the car, all of a sudden she opens her eyes real wide and looks right into his, his eyes and says, you killed me. And he wakes up. Now, why was he having that nightmare? Now, who knows? The, the brain is so mysterious. Right? There's, there's is no way to try to figure out why it does what it does. It, it thinks the way it does, why we have a dream or a nightmare or why it's bothered. 
It just is. And we have to recognize, okay, something's going on inside I don't like. I might need some help. And this was bothering him so much because this dream wasn't going away. And uh, he went, he had heard about EMDR, which we mentioned earlier. And he went to a trauma professional certified in EMDR. And I think he only went three or four times. And he's never had that dream again. And And he's been fine. So it doesn't matter how many years you do this job, things can happen and they build up. And sometimes even a seemingly insignificant event can just kind of unleash all the past traumas kind of just all at once. And now, now you're struggling. So we really have to practice awareness, being on top of things, having this conversation with your spouse. I I tell first responders all the time, at least once a year, sit down with your spouse and say something like this. I've realized that it's probably really hard for you to be married to me or living with me. Because you didn't just marry me, you married the La Mesa Police Department or the La Mesa Fire Department with all the weird hours and the call outs and me never being home or being gone on weekends and holidays and days on end. It's going to be really hard. What do you need from me so I can help you get through my career? For uh, your listeners out there, I bet none of them have probably ever really asked that of your spouse, your partner. I've never had, no. Try it and listen. Trust me, they are going to have all kinds of things to say. And uh, take it to heart. You know, thank them. Hey, thank you for telling me this. Uh, I am really going to try and do this. And if I fall a little short, please remind me, let me know. I want to do what I can to help you get through my career. I know it's hard on you and I want to help. And now that opens the door for you to tell them, hey, if I come home one day and I say I had a really bad call today, I'm not going to tell you what it involved. But this is what you can do to help me, to kind of help me recover. Because if we don't tell them that, what are they going to think when we come home and we go to our man cave or we don't, we're not communicative, we don't want to listen to them or, or do anything with the kid, like just leave me alone so I can get ready for the next 12-hour shift. What are they going to do? They're going to take it personal. What did I do wrong? You're always in a bad mood. Right? It's like walking on eggshells around you all the time. And, and, and uh, it's going to create bigger and bigger division. And with a lot less communication, it's just going to be problem after problem. So if they don't know what to do when you've had a bad call, they're either going to leave you alone, which is not good, or they're going to do something you don't want, which is not good. Or they're going to nag you, which is not good. So tell them. Tell them. And you're right. And you mentioned this in your book. Self-awareness is key. No one can do this alone, nor should anyone have to. We talk all the time on this podcast about self-awareness. We talk about self-regulation, self-reflection, and especially when it comes to leadership, you know, and and leading yourself, there's nothing wrong with asking the question. I mean, you said earlier, how many of the listeners have ever asked their spouse for their feedback? I'll go out on a whim and say a vast majority have not. I mean, I can tell you that I hadn't. It wasn't until I picked up a book. Um, It was Dr. Gil Martin's book several years ago, and now your book, where I took, you know, continue to take a a hard look at myself, you know, and have been curious, you know, about how I'm doing and been curious about, you know, asking someone else to give feedback on me. Um, So I thank you for that, Captain. And I'm going to challenge every listener today to do just that, you know, to ask the question, ask, you know, your spouse or significant other, ask them how you're doing. If they've seen, you know, 
changes in you? You know, are you different? How? And so on and so forth. So, I mean, it truly does take some humility and courage to ask that question. It truly does. But that's what this podcast is all about, right? It's about learning and leading uh, both self and others. So, Captain, we could talk behavioral and mental health for hours. I love it. I love the topic. I love your passion behind it. But let's take this to the leadership challenge. But the leadership challenge here, Captain, is the part of the podcast uh, where we ask our guest to call out or to challenge another leader out there. It could be anybody. Um, someone that you believe would be a good candidate to talk leadership. I want maybe someone that wants to or would love to share an experience, a story, or a philosophy around leadership. So I'm going to ask, Captain, is there someone out there that you believe would be willing to come talk leadership here on the kitchen table? Absolutely. If, if you want a premier expert in leadership, uh, talk with Mitch Javidi, J-A-V-I-D-I. He has done uh, years and years of work with the military, with uh, law enforcement, with developing um, a program where uh, tens of thousands of uh, first responders have gone through uh, every officer as a leader, uh, teaching leadership all over the country. Um, Mitch, Mitch is just a, a tremendous resource on anything leadership. And I think your listeners will get a lot out of him. Mitch Javidi sounds like a perfect candidate to talk on the kitchen table. Thank you. I'll gather his contact from you uh, to let him know that he has been officially leadership challenged by Captain Dan Willis out of La Mesa. Uh, thank you. So um, I do want to thank you again for sharing your stories, your experience, and your perspectives today, Captain. I mean, I want to reiterate to the listeners today, the book, Bulletproof Spirit, the First Responders Essential Resource for Protecting and Healing Mind and Heart by Captain Dan Willis. I encourage everyone to buy it, to read it, to encourage someone else to buy it and to read it as well. Uh, phenomenal, life-changing book, in my opinion. So, My website is first, spelled out F-I-R-S-T, firstresponderwellness.com. Thank you, Captain. Before we officially close this episode today, Captain, um, any lasting thoughts to our listeners? One, uh, God bless you guys and women for what you do to keep us all safe. Uh, take, take the daily traumas of the job seriously and do whatever you can, no matter what is going on in the community, to be your very best, to do as much good as you can day in and day out. Thank you. And thank you everybody for tuning in to the kitchen table today we truly hope that you found this time valuable we hope that we've inspired you to take action and to lead and to spread the leadership conversation wherever it takes you until next time be safe be intentional and stay curious